Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. If you have your Bibles, would you grab them and join me in Matthew chapter 19? That's Matthew chapter 19. We'll look at the first six verses this morning, and as you're turning there, I just want to say a few things. Number one, I just want to say thank you to Breck. Um, Breck and I, months ago, sat down and began to talk about the things that we would like to teach and the things that were going on in our culture, things that we thought were needful for our body, and that conversation morphed into us sharing a series and Breck agreeing to preach, and Breck, you've done a phenomenal job. Thank you for laying a foundation, for taking us back to Genesis and digging deep into the truth of God's Word to help us understand our identity and our purpose and our meaning in life. So thank you for that. My task now is to follow from that and to be a little less deep but more specific to us as men and women, to us in the realm of marriage and family. And I do want to recommend a book. If you're readers, if you're looking for a good book on the subject of manhood, um, uh, just a few weeks ago, Dr. Al Mohler, he has a podcast called Thinking in Public. He interviewed Senator Josh Hawley. Um, Josh Hawley's a sitting senator, and in that, that podcast, in that conversation, it, they were talking about this book, and the book is titled Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. And you might not expect this to come out of a senator's mouth, but I was pleasantly encouraged and surprised that this book reads more like a biblical theology of manhood than anything else. So some of the, some of the framework of this sermon is taken a little bit from this book, but there's so much more here. I highly recommend this book. If you're interested in that subject, you probably will be pleasantly surprised by that senator as well. So, Breck, thank you for your work, and I recommend the book. Now let's look at God's Word together. Matthew chapter 19, and this is a fairly familiar passage, but Those familiar passages have a way of kind of getting easy for us to see, and sometimes we miss things. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So this is pretty consistent throughout the ministry of Jesus, that he would go from city to city, from town to town, and large crowds would follow him. And when he was there with those crowds, amazing things happened. He did miracles, and in this case, he's healing individuals. But then the Pharisees came, in verse 3, they came up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Would you pray with me before we go any further in this? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to gather and worship you and to remember your love for us, to, to sing your praises and to sit under the teaching of your word. And now as we focus our attention on your word and what it means for us, especially in the area of manhood, Lord, we need your spirit. We need you to move among us. We need your truth 
to be pressed into our hearts so that we can discern it, and we can only discern it by the power of your Spirit. So work among us, convict us, encourage us, give us a vision for what manhood looks like, and help us to be faithful to that. And let the gospel of Christ ring in all that is said and all that is done today. That's my hope, that's my prayer. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, this passage is familiar to many of us, and sometimes familiarity can cause us to overlook something that is important. Now, we know some things about this passage. If you've read the New Testament, if you've read through the Gospels, and you, this is a familiar scene. You know that Jesus was no stranger to the Pharisees and their questions. We also know that Jesus understood their hearts. He knew that they were trying to trap him so that they could use his words against him. Uh, We know from the context here that the main context of the passage is marriage and divorce. And and if if you know the, the rest of the New Testament, then you know that this was a pretty hotly debated subject among religious leaders in that particular day. This question was asked of Jesus more than once. And in this debate... Um, Each side was known for wanting to put their own little spin on the Old Testament teachings. They had their commentaries on this. They had their human traditions on this. They wanted to put their own set of rules on when a man could and could not divorce his wife. And what began in Genesis as a fundamental part of God's plan for the world, marriage between a man and a woman, and a fundamental understanding of our basic humanity as male and female, those things became very twisted. They had begun to be redefined and corrupted and and lost altogether. And Jesus even confronts them multiple times and says, the word of God is in your lips, but your heart is far from it. You've lost sight of the truth of God's Word. And what the Pharisees and the Sadducees on the other side wanted to do is they wanted to reshape culture around their ideas. They wanted to take their ideas and they wanted to force them on, the, on society, on people, on the religious spectrum. They wanted their ideas and their laws and their views to be the dominant laws and views. And in the end, they had fashioned a culture that looked at men and women and marriage and family in a way that was very different from what God intended. And in scenes like this, what they're wanting Jesus to do is they're wanting Jesus to accept what they had built. They wanted Jesus to accept their little cultural iterations. I mean, think about it for a minute. Right, Breck spent four weeks in Genesis 1, and now here we're looking at that same passage just in the New Testament. There's been thousands of years between Genesis and Matthew. I mean, surely, if, if we've been getting Genesis wrong all of that time, then Jesus would come to the rescue and, and help us understand, yes, we need to evolve as a society in our understanding of these fundamental things. I mean, surely Jesus, at this point having the opportunity to do it, would deconstruct Genesis for us and help us to understand it in a new cultural light. I mean, here's Jesus' opportunity to update our thinking on God's creation of mankind as male and female. This is Jesus' prime opportunity to bring our thinking up to date, to expand the boundaries of human identity and to, to downplay the importance of religious teaching altogether. But that's not what he does. Not at all. Jesus does not embrace their newly imposed orthodoxy. He takes them all the way back to the beginning. 
And he quotes Genesis 1 and 2 to them. And he does it in this very confrontational way. These are men who had memorized the Pentateuch. They've memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Jesus has the audacity to say to them, Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Have you not read, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? See, Jesus is rejecting the new social order that the Pharisees are trying to invent, and he took them back to the beginning, and he said, listen, Genesis is the standard. Then, now, and forever. This is the story that God wants to tell the world about man and woman, and marriage, and family. But as you know, those individuals who want to change our cultural identity and our our views on manhood and all that, that, that didn't stop in Matthew 19. That's happening today. In our culture today, there's a new story being told about men and women and sexuality and gender and marriage and family. This new story is not rooted in the Bible, but it rejects the Bible completely. It's rooted in the ideas of men like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx and Herbert Marcuse. Their story rejects the biblical truth that God made man male and female with dignity, identity, and purpose, and destiny. Their story has produced confusion, division, insecurity, and nihilism. This new secular leftist cultural storyline has taken its toll on men and women, on marriage and family. And my goal over the next four weeks is to address each of these categories individually. And I want to follow Jesus' lead by pointing us back to God's Word so that we can have a clear picture of what God made us to be and how we are called to live in light of biblical truth. So this morning, we're going to talk about manhood, biblical manhood. And we're going to look at it in four parts. Number one, we're going to learn a little bit more about this cultural story. Number two, we're going to Understand that God made us male and female on purpose. Number three, we're going to learn something of Adam's mission. And then we're going to look at just a little bit of the character of biblical manhood. We're not going to exhaust this subject. but There's a lot for us to learn. So let's think about the modern cultural story. Let's, let's go back and consider the, the breaking news of the lie that's being sold to us today. I mentioned a few names a minute ago. Some of you might be familiar with some of those names. Let me give you a little bit of a a history on them, a little bit of background on Rousseau, for instance. And this is going to be an oversimplification at, at the very least, right? So Rousseau was a philosopher. He taught that man's core identity, man's core purpose identity is not tied to the external realities of a creator, nor a culture, nor the self evident biology that we're born in. Rousseau taught that humanity was able to construct their own identity by looking inward. We don't look outside of ourselves to know who we are and understand our place in the world. We look inward. Rousseau taught that human identity and purpose was primarily psychological. Something each person could invent in their own minds. Sigmund Freud came in and he taught that the essential identity of human beings was sexual. And his thoughts, more than most, have shaped our culture profoundly. 
The idea that sex is not simply an activity for the purpose of procreation and pleasure, but that it is fundamental to our very identity as human beings, that idea has become indelibly rooted in American thinking, and we have Sigmund Freud to thank for it. Karl Marx came, and he turned the world's attention to the politics of power. Marx insisted that the major source of power within society was economics, it was money, and he looked at the systems employed to produce wealth. Marx believed that money functioned within society to produce inequality between those who had it and those who didn't have it. Well, there were some that followed Marx. One of those, I mentioned his name, Herbert Marcuse, in the 1960s. He's an American intellectual. And he came and he took Marx's ideas and, and rather than focus on the inequalities created by wealth disparities, he focused on the inequalities created by cultural norms and cultural standards. So he just shifted the focus from money to culture. What Marcuse did was he looked at our culture and since American American culture is built upon biblical Christianity, he aimed all of his anger and all of his vehemence at the influence of Christianity upon American culture. Marcuse and his colleagues gave rise to the soup of modern identity politics that we're swimming around in right now. He centered his teachings on the inequalities or inequities of ethnicity, think race, or sex, and gender. And you might have heard their work referred to as cultural Marxism. That's absolutely what they produced. In academic terms, we wouldn't use the term cultural Marxism. We would use the umbrella term of critical theory. That's the, the philosophical world that we're living in right now, and we have these men to thank for that. Critical theory has given rise to the social revolution that we're facing. Things like modern feminism and the social justice movement and critical race theory and intersectionality and wokeness and the cry of white guilt and white privilege and Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ plus everything. All of these movements are offshoots of this line of thinking. All of these movements have ideas in common. And ideas have consequences. And as a church, we reject these movements and believe that all Christians should reject them as well. Because to accept these movements and trends is to accept the godless ideas that have given rise to them. To accept these trends is to embrace the secular worldviews that they're built upon. These ideas are contrary to the story of humanity that God tells us in Scripture. There is a very different story being told in our culture, and it is, it is antithetical to the biblical story that God has told us and that Jesus is bringing back to, to front and center. And we need to understand that. And in these new cultural stories, one thing all of the men in the room can understand and identify with is the fact that men have become the villain in every single one of these stories. They teach that manhood and masculinity are not good things, but they are tools, toxic tools of oppression and violence. A modern-day trope that sums up our culture's opinion on manhood is that men are trash. And that started sometime around 2017, and it is still going strong today. These ideas and these sentiments have caused men to feel shame for simply being men 
And, and as a result, men have begun to withdraw from school, from higher education. Men have begun to withdraw from the workplace. Men have begun to withdraw from seeking a wife and having a family. And men are, in, in incredible numbers, gravitating towards the fantasy worlds of online gaming and porn use to cope with the fact that they feel like enemies in their own country simply for being men. But the theoretical and bogus story of our cultural moment is a farce. And I want the men in this room to understand that you are part of a very different story. And God intends for you to play a non-ignorable role in this story. In the beginning, God made us male and female on purpose. Jesus reminds the Pharisees of this, and he's reminding us of this, that the story that matters most is the story that God is writing. The Bible is the epic true story of reality, and it teaches that God created everything that exists, and he created mankind in his image as the very pinnacle of his created order. We are not an accident. Mankind was created by God with a very distinct form, a very distinct function, and a very distinct purpose. We were created in the image of God, and Breck did a masterful job helping us to understand just how broad that understanding is. God has created us in His image to reflect His character, and also to serve as His special ambassadors on earth. We are created to be representations of God within creation. He made us to rule over creation and to have dominion over it in his place. And in order to do this, God commanded the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to fill the earth and bring it into order. But here's a question. How are we supposed to fill the earth? Well, God made us male and female. God created a man and a woman and brought them together to fulfill a purpose and their sexual identity is a distinct part of that purpose. Our biological sex is not a social construct and we can't dispense with it any way that we see fit. It is fundamental to who we are as human beings. And to deny that is to deny the very basic reality in which all of humanity has accepted and lived with it. And it's to deny what God has revealed in His Word. And I don't know if you've thought about this or not. I know I've mentioned it before from the pulpit. It is a significant thing that when the Bible tells us about Adam and Eve, the only distinguishing thing that he tells us about them is the fact that they are male and female. He doesn't tell us anything about their skin color. He doesn't tell us anything about how tall or short they are, how thick or thin they are. We don't know anything about their physical appearance. We do know that God made them male and female. God doesn't make mistakes, and God doesn't put superfluous words in His Word. Those words matter. Those words are important. And we're supposed to understand that humanity falls into one of two categories. That binary understanding of humanity as male and female is fixed. And God wants us to accept it front and center. Fundamental to who we are. God made Adam and gave him male sexual anatomy. God made Eve and gave her female sexual anatomy and then told them to come together, have children, fill the earth, and bring it into order. Rule and reign over it. A man is, we have a problem identifying and defining what a man and a woman is. A man is an adult male human being who can marry a woman and have a one flesh relationship with her. 
A woman is an adult female human being who can marry a man and have a one flesh relationship with him. Our sexual identity is concretely tied to our biological anatomy. Our biological form, male and female, together with our biological function, be fruitful and multiply, allows us to fulfill our God-ordained purpose of filling the earth and subduing it. No mistakes here. God declared in his creation of mankind as male and female, he said it is very good. Which means that the Bible, contrary to our common modern culture, the Bible presents clarity on this issue. Not confusion. Not a spectrum at all. Men, and and ladies, we're going to talk about you next week, but men, you are not an accident. And you have absolutely no reason to apologize for the fact that God made you a man. Humanity will be unable to accomplish God's purpose without you. But you also need to understand that you cannot accomplish God's purpose alone. Let's talk about Adam's mission a little bit. The Bible tells us that Adam was made from the dust while Eve was made from Adam's rib. And Adam was created outside of the garden, and then after God formed him, he brought him into the garden and then charged him with cultivating the garden, protecting the garden. He said in Genesis 2.15, you are to work it and keep it. We'll talk about what that word keep means in a minute. Now, Eve was created within the garden. She was made from Adam and created within the garden, and this suggests that she has a special relationship to the garden and the family that is going to inhabit that garden. The natural instincts of Adam and Eve correspond to how they were fashioned by God. Adam was, has a relationship with the dust that he was made from. He's tied to it. He's called to work the ground, to till the ground, to plant. And his biological strength fits him for the task God has called him to. Eve has a special relationship to the family, to the people in her life. She alone has the unique ability to cultivate new human life, to bear children from her womb. And together, the man and the woman were created to fulfill the command of God to fill the earth, Eve's natural role, and subdue it, Adam's natural role, but they have to come together to do this. They don't do this alone. They don't do it as separate individual persons. They must come together to fulfill the command of God, and this is by design. Our Creator wants us to understand that we aren't enough on our own. We're dependent upon one another. And most importantly, we are dependent upon Him. Now last week, Breck talked about his vision of the garden. And he, he talked about the fact that because of the, the topography described in Genesis, we would understand that the garden sits on an elevated plane. Right? Do you all remember that from last week? Some of you? Okay. So from their lofty position, from that elevated garden of Eden, Adam and Eve could remember God's command on them and they could look out on the world around them that God has commanded them to have dominion over. They were to extend the borders of the garden. They were to plow new fields and plant new trees and and cultivate new ground. But before that project got underway, Genesis 3 tells us that Adam, Adam failed to do something that God commanded him to do. God commanded him to keep the garden, to take up guardianship of the garden. And Adam failed in that responsibility. And we need to learn from Adam's mistakes. As men, we need to understand that the calling that God gave to Adam also rests upon us today. And with the time we have left, I want us to consider... 
three characteristics of biblical manhood that we should be striving after. Just three. There's a lot more, but just three. Number one, we are called to be warriors. Number two, we are called to be builders. Number three, we're called to be priests. The character of manhood starts with this. Men as warriors. Adam was called to work and keep the garden. That word keep means that Adam was commanded to guard, to watch over the garden, to keep it safe by protecting what was in the garden. And we know the story, right? We know that he didn't do his job and the serpent crept in and and fractured all that we understand by his deception. But why would God command Adam to guard and keep the garden unless God knew that there was a threat nearby? Think about this in light of the story. Adam was called to be a a guardian, a warrior, and he failed in his task. But we are also called to be warrior guardians. We are called by God to confront the evil in this world. We are called by God to confront the evil in our own hearts. We're called to be warriors and guardians. We're called to stand in evil's way. And to do this, we need to be strong, we need to be brave, and we need to be prepared. All of those things that the modern culture tells you are toxic, God says they are fundamental to who you are as a man. Adam's project begins but doesn't end with Adam. The commission that, he gave to, to, that God gave to him extends to all of us. And God made us to be strong. And our families need us to be strong. We aren't called to use our strength in a brutish way. We aren't called to use our strength in a a domineering way. We're called to use our strength in a way that is under control. We, We take our thoughts captive. We take our emotions captive. And we use our strength to produce stability and security, not chaos and fear. That's the sinful side of this. Christ calls us to take our thoughts captive, and that includes how we use our strength and and, and what we understand about our strength. And this is incredibly needful for us as godly men seeking to be faithful to Scripture in our culture today. Because we're being told from every direction that anything resembling traditional masculinity is toxic and wrong. We're being told that being a prolific provider and fearless protector and confident leader is viewed... it's, it's toxic, right? You've heard that over and over and over. There is a wonderful Greek word that sums up a godly response to this notion. It's hogwash. It's a lie. God calls us to be men. He calls us to be faithful. He calls us to be strong and hardworking and brave and confident protectors and guardians over our families and all those who need to be protected. This is our task I'm fond of the saying, I mentioned this a couple of months ago in our men's breakfast time, I'm, I'm fond of the saying, it is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And as men, we need to learn how to be strong, how to be brave, how to be confrontational in the right ways, how to stand in the face of evil, and we need to learn how to control that to the glory of God. Not let it loose, producing fear and sin, but to control it. It's what God calls us to do. We need to be prepared as men to defend our families and to defend our faith. We're called to do both. And we're to do this within gospel boundaries. Your wife and your children, men, they need your strength. 
But not only do they need your strength, they also need to know that you are willing to use your strength for their good. You serve as their defender. You're willing and gladly stand up for your family, even if that costs you. If that costs you socially or professionally or emotionally or even physically, they need that strength from you. And God has created you to exhibit that kind of guardianship, that kind of warrior mentality. Scripture abounds with warriors. You can just read a little bit in the Old Testament and you can see it. Like Joshua. You remember the story of Joshua? Joshua who led the army of Israel in the conquest of Canaan. But you might remember that Joshua had to follow in the footsteps of Moses. And, and it, if you read the text, you get some idea that maybe he wasn't as confident for the task. Maybe he wasn't as ready for that task as God wanted him to be. Fear had gripped his heart. And in the first chapter of Joshua, on three separate occasions, the Lord tells him what? He says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. You're going into a land that is filled with evil and is filled with paganism, and you're going to have to be strong and courageous because you're to be a warrior guardian over the people of God. There was evil, Joshua had to confront it. There were enemies, Joshua had to fight them, but he wouldn't be alone. He wouldn't be alone. God said to him, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Men, as, as Christians, we are called to be warrior guardians, brave, confronting evil, but we don't do this alone, and we don't do this on our own terms and rules. We do this according to God's word and God's rules. And we do this by the strength that God supplies. God has called each of us to be a warrior guardian, to confront the evil first in our own hearts, by His grace. And He's also called us to push back the evil in our world. And the world wants you to abandon that responsibility. The world wants you to abandon your masculinity, but God is calling you to develop it, to develop the character of a courageous man of faith. He's called you to be strong and courageous like Joshua, without apology, while also being directed by the love of Christ. Jesus wasn't a warrior in the same sense that Joshua was a warrior, but he was a warrior. Jesus confronted the evil in the world, and he confronted the evil in all of his people's hearts. He confronted it with patience and love and boldness and truth. He didn't take up the sword in this battle. Instead, Jesus, as a warrior, he laid down his life to conquer it. Men, we need to have the courage to face evil in this world, but we also need the wisdom of Christ to know when self-sacrifice is the way forward. That's what it means to be a warrior. Not only are we called to be warriors, but men, we're called to be builders. Builders. God told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over all that God had made. And, and just thinking back to the story, Adam didn't build the garden, God built the garden. And God put Adam in the garden. And God told him, look, this is the blueprint for the earth. This, I've, I've given you this. I've given you the, the blueprint for what you're supposed to do. Now go, and the implication is clear, now go into the rest of the world and extend it. And continue to expand what I've shown you to do. God made Adam to be a builder. And that task rests on all of us as men today as well. God has called us to a task, and He has fitted us for the task. He has prepared us for work. 
work that our sex is suited for. I like this quote from Doug Wilson. He says, men don't carry heavy things because they happen to have broad shoulders. God gave us broad shoulders because He wants us to carry heavy things. God has called you to work. God has called you to labor with the strength that He has provided for you. Now, one of the things that dominated my childhood, and you know, over the last week, several weeks, I've been thinking a lot about my childhood and my time with my father. But one of the things that dominated my childhood was the endless number of projects that my father would dream up for me and my brother just to keep us busy and so we wouldn't get in trouble all the time. We always had something to do. If we weren't hunting or fishing on Saturday, we were working. And it might have been the most seemingly unnecessary jobs in the world, but we were always doing something. We were always taking something of the chaos of our backyard or someone else's backyard or some hunting camp, and we were bringing it into order. I just, my whole childhood was just one series of projects after another. I remember one time, I was probably six or seven, and my my brother and I, our favorite thing to do was to ride bicycles. I don't know if y'all do bicycles anymore. Everything now that, is mo- that, that you ride on as kids is motorized. We had bicycles, and you had to you know, pedal those things, and you had to steer those things. Well, it wasn't safe for us to be on the road, and so my dad decided, well, he's going to build us a bike racing track. And so we learned what goes into a, a bike racing track, and in the vacant lot next door to my house, my dad and some of the other men and, and all of us young boys, we got out there and we built a bike racing track. And that means clearing off the land. Well, designing a track and then clearing off the land and pulling up trees and then moving dirt. And and, and we had berms that we could ride on and just countless jumps that we could go over. I mean, this is something that we did. We took something of the chaos of our our next door lot. We brought it into order for a good and godly purpose. I don't know if your dad taught you the same things, but my dad taught me the value of hard work. He helped instill in me a a desire, but also an appreciation for working with my hands. And my dad wasn't a perfect man. None of us are. But there's something good and right and biblical about that kind of legacy and heritage. Fathers, whether you're an engineer or not, God has called you to build Some men build cities, some men build houses, some men build gardens, some men build computer systems, some men build bike tracks. But the thing we all share is that we're called to build. We're called to work. We're called to be productive, to bring some aspect of this chaotic world into order for the glory of God and the good of others. When David, when David became king over Israel, He was known for being a warrior. He was known for being a shepherd and then a warrior. But later on, as he became king and he united the tribes, David had a desire. His desire was to establish a capital city for the people of God. David wanted to build a capital, and he wanted to build it on a hill. And there was one particular spot that just made good sense for that. It was the city of the Jebusites, the city of Jabus. And his soldiers conquered the city, and they drove out the pagan worship that was there. And, and, and in the place of that sinful darkness that once dwelt in the city, David brought the ark of God. And now, in, in, instead of the darkness of pagan idolatry, the beauty of the worship of Yahweh was taking place in the city. The city that David built. And, and it was known as the city that David built, but it was actually more 
more accurately known as the, the city where God dwelt. Our work has both purposes. It, it benefits man, but it is also to the glory of God. God has called us to work and be unashamed of it. Whether it's blue-collar work or white-collar work, both are valuable. Both are to be celebrated by the people of God. We are to work and build and have something to share with others. And our work is a reflection of God's work. David would have understood that. He's in the garden. God made this. And God says, now you go and do what I've done. And put your own spin on it or whatever. But go and do this. Our work is a reflection of God's work. That means when you're working, you're not just working for yourself. You're working for the glory of God. So you don't have to look over your shoulder for your boss. You can know that God is looking down upon you, having called you to do something great, to do something according to His pleasure and His command. We're to bring the chaos of creation into order in the same way that God did. And in that way, we reflect the creative power of God. Men, you are meant to work. Now, studies show that men who work are more likely to be happy they're more likely to be married, and they're more likely to have a family. And all those things are good things, but it's the Bible that tells us that work is what we were made for. We're called to be warriors. We're called to be builders. We're also called to be priests. Priests. Priests work to establish and maintain and strengthen the relationship between God and His people. Over the past two years, I've had the privilege of being an assistant coach for a local Christian school, uh, an assistant basketball coach for the, for the varsity basketball team. And over those years, I've built a relationship with the young men that are there, and, and in some cases with their families. And a few months ago, after the end of the, or toward the end of our basketball season, uh, one of those families approached me, one of the, the, the mom and dad approached me, and they asked me to spend some time with their son. And they wanted me to spend some time with their son just to help him grow in his faith. They wanted me to help answer some questions that he had and to essentially disciple this young man. And this family is very active in their local church. They've been involved in a local church since they were, well, ever since they've been married. They've been actively involved in their faith. But the father confessed to me that he had no clue how to help his son walk with Jesus. He didn't know how to help him. He couldn't answer his questions. He couldn't teach him how to study the Bible for himself. It seemed to me, and I, I love this man, but it seemed to me that this father assumed that all of that, teaching a son how to walk with the Lord and repent of sin and grow in their faith, that that was in some way the, the responsibility of professional Christians, like the pastor types. Men, let me be clear. Teaching your children to love Jesus and grow in their relationship to Him, that is what you're here for. That is your job. It's not your job alone, but it is your job primarily. God gave you those children. And you are called to help them to grow. You are called to teach them. You are called to disciple them. You are called to set a standard for them. And that doesn't mean that you don't pray that they go well beyond your standard. But that's your job. It's not just one that is relegated to the professional types. You are not simply here as fathers to change their tie, uh, tires, to teach them how to tie a tie and balance a checkbook and shave. God has given you sons and daughters so that you will step up and teach them how to love the Lord. 
how to read and study the Bible, how to repent of sin and grow in holiness. And you can't do this if you don't know how to do it yourself. Should you expect to find holiness in your children if it is lacking in you? By God's grace, that happens, but that's not the model. That's not what we've been called to. We are to bring our children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. This is fundamental in our relationship to Christ, that we are to know how to pursue Him, and we are to pursue Him relentlessly, and we are to teach our children how to pursue Him relentlessly. We are to be growing in our love for Jesus, growing in our understanding of His Word, growing in our holiness by repenting of sin and increasing in obedience. Men, you are called to this. Are you personally growing in your relationship with Christ? Are you growing in your love and appreciation for who He is and for what He has done? Look, I I think we can probably say this with a great degree of certainty. We want all of our children to love the Lord. We want them to find Him more satisfying than the pleasures of this world, more satisfying than their hobbies, more satisfying than politics, more satisfying than money and sports, and dare I say it, even the cowboys. Yes. We want them to love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want them to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But are we setting that example for them? Are we pursuing Him in that way? Are we setting Him in that place of preeminence in our hearts and in our homes? I've got three children. I'm about to have two in college and one in high school. I don't think I'm old enough for that, but... It's here. So, But I've learned this over the years. Our, my kids will naturally gravitate towards and love the things that I love and gravitate towards. They are naturally excited about the things that I am excited about. And one of the greatest sources of motivation in their lives toward a, a relationship with Christ is for me to love Jesus. Boldly, unashamedly, clearly. It's not hard to determine what we love most because what we love will be seen in the way we live, what we spend our time doing. We find it easy to talk about what we love, whatever that might be, whether it's politics or money or video games or YouTube or whatever else. At what point does Christ fall in that category for you? You you love to think about things and talk about things, and you make time for the things that are valuable to you. And my point is this. As Christian men and fathers, we need to always be growing in our love for the Lord. We need to be doing this in such a way that our wives and children see it as an example for how they too are to grow in their love for Him. We're to take up that responsibility as a priest. And there's so much more. There's so much more. I'll close with this. My my burden for us as men at Cornerstone is that we would fully embrace what God, God has called us to be as men and as husbands and as fathers. My prayer is that we would refuse to listen to our culture's demands and step into our God given roles as warriors and builders and priests for the glory of God. And we aren't going to do this alone, we aren't going to do this in our own strength. 
By God's grace, we have a, a pretty amazing unity in this body. And we have a, a deep love between the men of this body. And we're not going to do this alone. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to link arms with one another. We're going to go forward together as men. We have men in this room. You have men in this room that you can count on. But you also have, in your relationship to Christ, you have something that goes well beyond the brother beside you. Because here's what we all know is true. If we're willing to admit it, we'll all know this is true. When it comes to our role as men and husbands and fathers, we fail more times than we can count. We fail more times than we can count. The truth is we're all guilty of disobeying God and, and shirking our role as men and husbands and fathers. We all fail at some level. And this should remind us of the fundamental story that makes us Christians. It should remind us of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. See, the good news is not that if you're good enough, God will love you. It's that God saw you in your broken sinfulness and He sent His Son to die in your place so that you could be with Him. So that your sin could be forgiven and you could be restored in your relationship to God. So that even now, as a believer, the gospel is still to be ringing in your ears. If you're feeling a sense of guilt over failures, even now, as a result of this sermon, here's what I want you to understand. You run back to Christ, and you confess that sin to Him. And you turn from that sin, and you leave it in your past, and you go forward with the clear direction that God has given you in your word, knowing that you have been forgiven. And the one who started a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You are not alone. Christ is with you. This is our calling. To embrace our role as men and as husbands and as fathers, we're going to have to remember the gospel, and we're going to have to walk in those gospel truths. So, Last thing, remember the gospel. Men, you, are, you and I, we are far greater sinners than we care to admit, but in Christ we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And let that grace fuel you as you embrace God's calling on you as a man. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us despite the fact that we don't deserve to be loved. Thank you for giving us a hope through Christ. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your sustaining power. Thank you for your word that guides and directs and confronts and shapes us to be the men that you've called us to be. And now, Lord, help us to take up that mantle with, with gospel motivation and arm in arm with our brothers in Christ. Help us to be the men you've called us to be for the good of others and for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.